I am fully aware that mezcal is not something that would have been consumed. And when I do, I, I even say in the caption for one of the photos in the Mildred Pierce thing that I guarantee you that mezcal is not in this bar that Zachary Scott, you know, or or that in in Mildred's, you know, cocktail lounge annex to her restaurant, there was no mezcal in there. But why why not take advantage of the fact that it's here now? Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's an episode positively full of wickedness. Rob Byrne of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival is back to talk the new restoration of Von Stroheim's Foolish Wives from Flickr Alley. TCM czar of noir Eddie Muller is also back to talk about drinking noir and spreading it to the next generation with two new noir books. And speaking of detectives, though not noirish ones, author Rob Kozlowski on William Powell and Myrna Loy becoming Nick and Nora. Hey, life isn't all gambling on the Riviera and playing the rackets. It's also listening to podcasts. And that's why you want to be sure and subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you have the urge, leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts to help us get our perfect five-star rating back. Thanks. So you just had the San Francisco Silent Film Festival again. Is this the first one after COVID or the second? Uh, this was our second one after COVID. So last year, um, being 2022, we finally had our 25th festival. I uh, can't say annual anymore, but our 25th festival. And this year, 2023, we celebrated our 26th year. And did it go well? went really well. I think um, and we certainly got a lot of good feedback from the audience. Um, and audience size was actually larger than we had budgeted or larger than we anticipated. So um, another big plus, right? It was a, you know, everybody's a little wary of people, you know, how to feel people feel about going out to the movies again. But I think I think that's pretty well, you know, there's probably still some hesitancy out there, but I think people are past that. They're ready to get into the cinemas again. And you were in the Castro maybe for one last time? Yeah, so you know, once again in the Castro Theater, which you know last year celebrated its 100th year. It was built and opened in 1922. Um, and uh, you know, it's certainly great to be there. Um, all of our festivals have been there. And you know, the, the future of the theater is a little uncertain right now, but we're, we're hoping to be there, um, you know, one way or another, on into the future. That's Rob Byrne, president of the board of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, 
And what we're here to talk about is one of the films they premiered at the 2022 festival, a new restoration of Eric von Stroheim's Foolish Wives, done in collaboration between the San Francisco Silent Film Festival and the Museum of Modern Art. Von Stroheim's tale of corrupt and cynical aristocrats in a Monte Carlo lavishly recreated on a backlot by Universal isn't necessarily unusual for its time. Silent movies are full of predatory rotters. But Von Stroheim's clear-eyed cynical telling certainly is. Not least because he himself plays the dirtiest rotter of them all and makes him fascinating. But like so many great silence, we're lucky to even have it, and really didn't have it for a half century. A restoration in the early 70s gave us the closest thing to von Stroheim's vision, and this new version significantly upgrades that restoration, with advances in digital technology and a new score by Timothy Brock and the Real Philharmonia de Galicia that you're hearing behind me. I spoke with Rob Byrne about the 100-year history of rescuing this film, now available from Flickr Alley. I started by asking him why this was such an important film in von Stroheim's career. Well, this is, you know, this is his third feature, the first being Blind Husbands, which was, he did on a low budget, and which was highly successful. It doesn't look like it's a low budget film, but it was very successful and sort of introduced him as a as a director, and he, you see him developing a lot of his uh, techniques or things that would become uh, signature Stroheim metaphors or or, uh, or or symbols or tropes that you see all the time in in, in Stroheim films. His second film, The Devil's Passkey, is unfortunately lost, and it was with Foolish Wives where they really let him run wild basically and stroheim i think it's the first one he becomes the stroheim that in a way we really think of him as as sort of the wildly obsessive highly detailed director um his you know the character that he plays um is is almost a personification of stroheim himself uh there were certainly the excesses in the production the crazy budget overruns the the um extravagant uh, the extravagant links he went to in the film um and certainly sort of what the way we think of stroheim i think uh in many ways the stroheim of of you know greed and some of the productions that follow are all all have their real birth in in foolish wives it's interesting that he's playing kind of a scoundrel and con artist, and it really seems like him daring everyone to associate that character with him personally. He's been passing himself off as this aristocratic figure, and the film is him basically confessing that it's all a humbug. Ah, certainly, you know, the, the military pretensions, the, 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 the phony ties to the aristocracy, um, you know, it's, it's certainly a case of a persona playing a persona. You know, that's, that's of course, a, something he carried through with many of his films. He's often, almost always in uniform, always, always um, aspiring or, or having some sort of pretensions to aristocracy or to royalty. Um, and, uh, you know, you do, knowing Stroheim's life and knowing his background, um, 
it is sort of, you know, fiction meets real world in a certain extent. Or at least it's, you know, it all fits in the world that, that may have been in his mind. And of course, we'll never know what really was really in his mind. So was it a big hit in its time? Did people react to it well? Well, they reacted for sure. It's hard to say it was a big hit because if, if your definition is that it made a lot of money for the studio, the answer is no. Um, you know, the film was, was widely circulated and made money, but Stroheim had spent so extravagantly on the film that there was, a, you know, this, no way the studio makes a, makes a profit on that. You had to wonder what he was thinking because there was there was so much that was you know, that was there that would have never made it past any censor at the time. So, um, you know, maybe some of those things were sacrifices for censors so that they'd have something to cut. But they, you know, reading the censorship records in various from various locations as uh, you know, he he definitely pushed the boundaries in every direction. So the film survives in just a couple of prints that are wildly different. Tell me about that. Sure. There are, bas- there are not basically, there are only two surviving elements. So um, maybe to back up a little bit, as, as your listeners probably are aware, that uh, particularly during the silent era, multiple versions of a film would be created. And, and that meaning physical negatives were created. Um, because for export purposes, you would want to export a negative, for instance, to Europe and have them duplicated there um, because film exports were taxed by the foot. So you don't want to ship 20 prints. You want to ship one negative. Almost always a second or sometimes even third negative would be created. The, the negative with basically the best shots would be used for or the best versions of a take would be used for the American negative and then the export negatives would be used for takes that weren't as good. Either they were, they were the same take shot with a different camera angle, or they would be they, the performers would actually redo a shot several times. So there's two negative, two prints, two sources, um, each with from a different negative. So from the American negative, there is not really the American release of the print of the film. In 1928, Universal was going to recut the film and release it with sound effects. So they cut they cut the 1922 original version. Uh, they added new titles. Uh, they changed the story somewhat, changed the, uh, the names of the characters, um, added some optical effects, and but never released it and put that on the shelf. Well, unfortunately, when MoMA, uh, Iris Berry in the 30s, requested a copy of Foolish Wives, that's what went off the shelves at, uh, at Universal and went to MoMA. So that was what was known as the American version forever, um, for a very long time. That's what people knew as Foolish Wives. At the same time, in, in, the, uh, in the archive in Milan, is an Italian release, um, which is based off of the foreign negative, and it is cut very sharply. It's like they were trying to release or try to reduce the running time by reducing the length of each shot. And of course, it has Italian intertitles, not American titles. And um, it was also, you know, obviously off the foreign negative. So the take of each shot is actually a different performance. Sometimes they're quite similar, but when you line up the shots side by side, the American version versus the Italian version, um, you'll see slightly different performances or perhaps different framing 
So those that's all that survives. There are no other copies of the film that are known to exist. So no 1922 print that was released and circulated in, in cinemas uh, in America is known to survive. So I was reading the booklet with the Flickr Alley release last night, and apparently it took a while to even realize that these two versions were so different. I guess Richard Kozarski started reading about things that weren't in the MoMA print and deduced that the European version had to be a markedly different cut. Right. I mean, if you, it doesn't, you don't have to go that far back to, to think about what, when you were doing film research. Um, you really need to go to the archive and look at a print. Right, you needed to go to the physical source and look at it. There was no scanning and emailing around files and that sort of right, thing. Right, right. So it would be much more difficult twenty years ago, even to to look at a film and then try to remember what's in a head or write down everything that's in it, and then some point later, maybe years later, see another version and try to remember: Did I see that shot or not? Or, or uh, you know, or was that there? Or or to compare your, you know, textual descriptions of something. So, uh, you know, it, it's, we take it for granted, but it's now much more easier for us to, to compare side by side different versions and things like that to really do a detailed analysis of things. So following, I guess, Kazarski's writing on what he'd observed, that's how we got what's known as the Arthur Lennig restoration. Right. So, um, so it was really you know, an amazing piece of work and, and certainly everything, you know, I should first say just right off the bat that everything we did certainly stands on the shoulders of, of what Arthur and, and Richard accomplished. So what they had available to them, uh, what Arthur Lenning had available to him was exactly the, the same sources I described to you. Um, but what they had was a multiple later generation duplicate of the Italian version. So, and then of course the, the MoMA dupe or the MoMA 1928 re-release. And so that was a matter of, um, again, the technology of the time is duplicate, physically duplicating those two sources and splicing them together, uh, shooting new titles, uh, that they thought were, you know, that research told them was appropriate, and and reassembling the work uh, to create what, you know, the best representation of the film um, that they could. And, you know, that's the version that we've all known for a very long time. That's the version that's on, uh, on uh, the Kino DVD. And, uh, you know, that's the one I certainly, I grew up knowing. So why do a new one? Well, there's a there's a lot that's changed in those uh, since that time. You know, one one significant thing is we were able to go back to the you know the originals. When I say that, um, you know, the Italian version they had was um, a dupe of a dupe of a dupe of a dupe. We were able to get access to the Milan nitrate and do a 4K scan of that, which you know the clarity and the the image quality is so much more enhanced than than the the duplicates that were available. You know, and likewise, we went back to the earliest uh, surviving duplicate of the MoMA MoMA material and did that. Um, we also 
uh, had access to, I don't know if we had access to, but we certainly had the ability to do much more uh, technically that, than would have been possible um, back during the Lenin uh, restoration. Uh, certainly much more uh, textual information had come to light in terms of continuity and that sort of thing. Uh, but also we were able to do research on the, for instance, the color, um, which we were able to reproduce the tending and toning sequences throughout, um, similar to what Universal would have done. And then, of course, we had the ability to um, uh, to reproduce the hand coloring, which we're able to do a great deal of research on um, to make sure that we were faithfully reproducing the the seventh reel, which has this magnificent hand coloring throughout the the uh, the fire sequence. You know, we were able to find the the notes from the man that Gustav Brock, the man who did the hand coloring itself, um, as well as you know, press releases, newspaper reviews, and that sort of thing, that all, all of which confirmed what, what should we should be coloring and what we should be leaving alone, and that sort of thing. We also retitled to quite a bit. Uh, you know, some of the title text um, and uh, that, that was used in the um, Lenning Restoration, we, we, we redid. And also then we recreated all of the titles in a visual pattern that would have, you know, visual motif that would have matched what was done in 1922 as to as opposed to including the 1928 titles. So you had access to censorship records or cutting continuities that Lennig didn't have? Yeah, well, it was mainly, I think, just to been able to accumulate a lot of things. We, had, we, we locate a French novelization of the film um, we were able to get more censor rec more censorship records, um, which for the most part were kind of helpful, but not a great deal. Um, sometimes you get really lucky, um, particularly with, with foreign censorship records. American censorship records tend to tell, just tell the producer, the, the distributor, what they want cut out, right? Remove this scene, remove this title. Um, though occasionally when you see something like remove this title, then you know there was a title that said that. Um, as opposed to foreign, foreign um, censorship records, and we have the Swedish censorship records, um, tend to document every single title in the film, which can be very helpful. Um, of course, they're in Swedish, but, but you know that at least in the Swedish release, there was a title that said this or a title that said that. Unfortunately, we didn't have a complete... Uh, continuity of the 1922 release. That would have been the the real Rosetta Stone um, that would that would have given us you know exactly a roadmap of 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 you know shots and title text. Um, we had a continuity from a later release, but we don't know what that was from. It's, it's undated, and we looked at it and relied on it, but it became more of you know sort of in the soup of all the various fragmentary documentation we had as opposed to, uh, um, you know, something we could really follow like a roadmap. So how close to the 1922 version do you think you are now? It's shorter. Uh, we know that. And, it, you know, of course, and in fact, you can say what was even the 1922 release, right? They, they did the premiere in New York and the day after throw away the first two reels. So, you know, the, the, the film now starts with 
um, the film is everybody except the premiere audience uh, starts with the uh, the sequence on the the patio with the villa amorosa and everybody's mad at each other um you know the maud george uh you know pinches the maid played by dale fuller and they're all kind of angry and you don't know why and you know and of course during the first two reels you you have the information that uh, there's been a lot a lot going on you know, most likely sexually between all four of the people there, but you never see that, so you don't know. So we can feel confident that it is as close as anything could be at this point to what was in 1922, but it's one of those situations to a certain extent if you don't know what you don't know. There's places where you feel like there's probably something else in here, or there's places where you know there's titles that weren't in any of the sources. So we, so for instance, we did, we don't invent anything that we don't have the evidence for. So, but for instance, there's the scene um, fairly early on where the Stroheim's getting out of bed and the maid Dale Fuller is in there. She's she bring she's getting up in the morning and she's bringing in linens or whatever, and then she throws a total tantrum and collapses crying and 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 all this sort of thing and then he's comforting her but sarcastically comforting him you know she he kisses her and then he wipes his lips off and he looks to the ceiling or whatever and you know at the very end she says you promised you would marry me or something like that and he says you know he agrees sort of um but there's in that shot in that sequence there's probably you know four or five cuts that probably had titles in them and if you know the continuity, you know that the you know the maid is pregnant by him, and this is why she's insisting that he she marry him, he marry her, and and why she's so upset. Um, and you know that you know that every single one of those cuts had a title. She's explaining this, um, but we didn't insert titles there. For instance, to you know we did just didn't invent anything. We didn't have any any evidence of what they would have said. Um, we certainly had our best guesses. So there's situations like that um, where you it, you just feel there's something missing, but you, do, you don't have anything that tells you what it was. Yeah, it doesn't feel choppy. It feels like quite a full film. But there's something modern about the way it doesn't explain everything. Opening with them all cross at each other over breakfast just feels like you've landed in the middle of their lives, and you have to kind of put pieces together after the fact. That's true. That's true. That's a really good way to put it. And I think to a certain extent was maybe just as a result of the, um, of the, of the reduction, you know, it, you know, it, if the original, I won't say, you know, cut, but you know, his first assembly was about 30 reels long. So I suspect at that point, everything was explained in excruciating detail. <laughs> One character I found really interesting was, as you mentioned, the Dale Fuller character, the homely maid. I always thought of Stroheim's films as being mostly these tales of royalty and aristocrats, except for Greed, which was gritty realism and, and a real outlier. Um, but she's kind of the link between the two, this pathetic character who really anticipates Zazu Pitts and Greed. Yeah, you see, I mean, Dale Fuller shows up in just about everything one way or another. Um, once you know her as a as an actor, you you know there's a certain uh, 
company of actors, you know, and I don't think it's just because they were all universal actors that Sturheim uses over and over and over again. Uh, but Fuller is one that's really I enjoy as a, what, Maria Maricopa in Greed. And of course, um, what's his name? Kravis. The, he plays the, the, the counterfeiter. Cesar Gravina. Yes. Who I recognize from The Man Who Laughs as well. Oh, of course. Right, right. So you commissioned a new score by Timothy Brock. Tell me about that. We thought this would be an opportunity to 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 bring a new score to life. We've worked with Timothy Brock, of course, before, who is a you know very accomplished uh, composer for silent films, and we just thought it would be nice to give it a, a clean, fresh start and to give Tim an opportunity to to do something with it. You know, he play he conducted live when we when we premiered the film in San Francisco last year. Um, and we had the opportunity to, with Tim, to contract a, an orchestra to really, um, you know, spend a week in the studio and, and bring it to life. So we, we thought we'd, for this release, we would just go all out. Yeah, it's a big film that kind of needs a big orchestral score. I have the previous Kino Blu-ray with Rodney Sauer playing for it, and it's quite a nice score, but it's a single piano, as I recall. So, you know, it's good to see the film get the big, lavish treatment. Yeah, we really felt it. Like you said, it, I mean, it's a big film, and it needs it, it's really helped by big music. So it's out on Blu-ray and DVD. What else happens at this point? Well, you know, what's going to happen, of course, is what I'm saying is the, the dream or the nightmare of any film restoration is the minute you finished it, um, some amazing new source shows up. Um, so who knows? Maybe that in some, you know, some collector's basement or some closet somewhere, we're going to find the, the full 1922 version, which, of course, would be an amazing thing. But aside from that, uh, the, the, the restoration has been very well received. It's getting a lot of attention. Um, I'm very pleased with you know, what, what people are saying about the DVD, of course. But it's also you know, really getting a good circulation at, at heritage festivals and film festivals and archives and museums and that sort of thing. So there's definitely an appetite for the film. You know, I think I think Stroheim, and I think you mentioned a little bit sort of the modernity of how the the film looks and how it feels and how it plays. Um, you know, and it and certainly the character char- Stroheim's character is, I wouldn't call him an anti-hero, but but you know the having the the main protagonist that's a fairly evil person um, with no prediction for redemption at the end. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think audiences kind of appreciate that kind of film. Yeah, it's kind of bracing compared to your usual melodrama of the time, which might have some of the same elements, but definitely not the same flavor. So with this one out, what's in the future for the San Francisco Silent Film Festival? What else do you have in the works? Um, we've got a couple of things we're working on. We're working on a couple of early Clara Bow films that uh, we're having to, hoping to finish uh, this year. And we have a couple other titles that are sort of in the works. We have a uh, we have funding requests out for those, so I won't throw out titles right now. But we have we have a couple other things that I think people are going to really enjoy seeing, um, hopefully next year. 
You know, the one I saw a couple of years ago at my local music box in Chicago that I really liked was The Signal Tower, directed by Clarence Brown. A fairly typical railroad thriller, but really well done. Yeah, that Signal Tower is a good example. And that's actually a good example of the kind of projects we typically do. Um, For me, sort of my sweet spot on when we pick a project is to find a great film that nobody knows, you know. People know Clarence Brown, they know that his, uh, the Garbo films and that sort of thing, but nobody had really seen The Signal Tower. And, and we watched it, it was just, just such a great film. So uh, it's actually playing next week in Knoxville, Clarence, film, Clarence Brown's hometown. Uh, they're doing a, a Clarence Brown festival. Um, but for the most part, when you, when you look at our pretty varied list of things that we've restored, most of those films weren't necessarily household names when you know before we did them um you know one of my personal pleasures was bringing uh behind the door back to life um (laughs) i still enjoy showing that one just i do a master class every year and i enjoy showing that with students and sort of blowing their minds about what a silent film might have been like Wives is out now from Flickr Alley. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. If noir teaches us anything, it's that being in one racket should be followed by moving into others. That's what TCM's Eddie Muller has done at the urging of his publisher, Running Press. He has two new noir books for different audiences out. Noir Bar, cocktails inspired by the world of film noir, offers history and recipes for 50 cocktails, some actually featured in films noir, others inspired by the plot lines and settings of films from alias Nick Beale to Woman on the Run while Muller also helps raise a new generation of noir fans with Kid Noir, Kitty Farrell, and The Case of the Marshmallow Monkey, a picture book for kids with lots of references for mom and dad as they read along. We're excited to welcome back the czar of noir himself, Eddie Muller. So, how are things at TCM? And I say that with full support and sympathy from the Nitrateville community. Uh, I wish I could tell you something definitive, but I don't really have that knowledge. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's above my pay grade, Mike. <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, you know, obviously it could be a lot better. Um, but a- as of right now, um, you know, we're proceeding and um, I- I'm, I'm hopeful and I, I don't think TCM is going anywhere, but um, you know it's a it's a, a, a an odd period of I don't know exactly what to call it. You know, um, less regard uh, than it deserves. I, I'm not positive 
it certainly ends up looking that way, even though I am privy to internal communications that indicate otherwise. Somehow it's continuing to to rub TCM loyalists the wrong way, right? Which I totally, which I totally understand. And uh, I do know that you know a lot of times on on social media these days, people are uh, you know very very quick to jump to conclusions and sure. things. And and uh, I, I know that that whole saga with uh, Spielberg and Scorsese and Paul Thomas Anderson, that that was for real. That wasn't like blowing smoke or a, or some kind of camouflage. It was a very, very real thing. It's, it, I think it's kind of unfortunate that it had to come to that. Yeah. Uh, but, but we'll, we'll see, you know, where it goes. I, and it, it's, I, I that that's about all I can muster at the moment, Mike. Uh, I'll be yeah, honest with no, you. No, I, I understand. Let me come at it from a different way because I, I I really can't tell you specifics, even if I knew them. Sure. About what was happening at the network, but um, you know, in the, in the larger scheme of things, um, it's all part of this incredibly rapid change in the in the entertainment business that is just tumultuous i mean you're seeing it there's a writer strike there's a screen actors guild strike the way people are receiving their entertainment now has changed so dramatically that uh, it's affecting everyone and everything and 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 it's such a a volatile thing that it's people are having a you know, a very visceral reaction to it. Like I'm going to lose the thing I love. Right. And, and I I don't know that that's true, but it is entirely possible that you're going to have to get the thing you love in a different way at some point. And what, what that amounts to, like I said, that is way above my pay grade. Right. (laughs) Uh, I I don't, I don't get to be part of that decision-making process so uh, but i'm i'm acutely i'm acutely aware of it let's put it that way so you're just glenn ford and it's up to george mccready to figure all this out (laughs) in a manner of speaking yes uh i i know i know that illusion and uh i i'm i'm sure that certain people that are at the heads of certain companies would not want to be considered a uh, scar-faced Nazi, but <laughs> I, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um, well, in the meantime, we are all fans of film noir. You are expanding your world domination of film noir. You have two books. <laughs> out in a relatively short period aimed at very different audiences. At least I assume the kiddies are not buying a bar book generally. Um, Unless you're a smart parent and you're going to teach your kids how to make you the cocktail. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, let's, let's start with noir bar cocktails inspired by the world of film noir. Now I have to admit uh, when I saw this book, my first thought was the way you drink in a film noir is you open the bottom 
a drawer of your desk in your private eye office and you take out the bottle of, of scotch and you pour three fingers into the same glass that you like brush your teeth with. And that's your, you know, that's how you drink in a film noir. But you make convincingly make a case that there are actual cocktails in films noir. Um, so, yeah, tell me, tell me about that. Interesting. And, and Mike, I'm giving you bonus points for, for that correct pronunciation of films noir. <laughs> that was good. Um, yeah, I, I certainly uh, understand exactly where you're coming from with that. And I, I mean, you can find references in the book to that very thing. You know, like I'm, I'm going to create a cocktail in honor of Dashiell Hammett, and obviously people think Sam Spade just drinks, you know, bourbon out of a tumbler. Right? That's that's what he does. But you you dig a little bit, and you realize that's not exactly the case. You know, uh, I mean, when I started doing this book, I I I know Hammett's daughter and granddaughter, and I it never occurred to me to ask them, you know, what did he drink. And so I was surprised to find out that Hammett himself was a martini guy huh. and like me, which was cool, but that he drank a vodka martini. And I said, well, I said that's really weird because vodka was not a common right. thing at all back then. And I was kind of intrigued by the idea that, that, you know, they said specifically, oh, it wasn't just vodka. He drank Stoli. Huh. And it was like, wow, that was like brand new to the United States. It was not an easy thing to find. So I had to figure like, wow, this is his Marxist background. <laughs> you know, I'm going to drink Russian vodka. And and I was just really intrigued by that, as I was by the story that uh, his granddaughter told me that, you know, one day the doctor said, you got to stop drinking. And he did. Huh. He just stopped that that day. But he would continue to make cocktails at cocktail parties that he and Lillian Hellman would have. And he enjoyed watching other people drink them for him. And I, I just, you know, that those are the kind of little tidbits and things I wanted to work into the into the book. But, uh, you know, I, I'm st I have to confess here, Mike, the book was not entirely my idea. My editor at Running Press, Cindy Sapala, she's the one who said, you know, we've had a lot of good luck lately with cocktail books. Would you consider doing one? And I and I said, wow, OK, hadn't thought about that. And and it it was great fun. And, and obviously a part partially a project born out of the pandemic. Sure. Because uh, it, it became obvious that so many people were suddenly becoming at home mixologists because right. there was nothing else to do yeah <laughs> uh, so so it all kind of fell into place yeah now you had been a bartender in your early days <clears throat> which i guess would be what i consider kind of the low point of mixology in america the i don't know it would be the late 70s early 80s mid 80s but you know the pina colada song kind of sums up the uh, you know the the level of drinking yeah, you're, happening then precisely you're absolutely right which is partly why i didn't <laughs> continue yeah it, it just it wasn't that interesting and the people who drank were bad drinkers yeah and and i came to just dislike <laughs> very much and it, it was interesting to see the whole 
the whole renaissance really because it it's interesting that my my um interest in film noir uh tracks parallel to like the revitalization of uh, the whole vintage culture you know people with the retro dress and all that sure. stuff and swing culture and cocktail culture and you know the 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 whole retro thing that happened about 25 years ago does sort of coincide with you know my uh, renewed interest in well let's put it honestly like having a cottage industry <laughs> that is based around film noir you know and festivals and the tv show and books and all this stuff which is great because that in large measure is my audience. You know, when I, when I do these noir city film festivals and things, especially the one I do in San Francisco, that whole uh, crew turn out in force, you know, the art deco society, the, you know, I get really cool bars to come and do pop-ups in the mezzanine of the theater and all this kind of stuff. So it it's not just a movie thing. It's it 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 has developed a lifestyle thing for a lot of people, and so I'm counting on them to buy buy this book. <laughs> yeah, um, you know my my son is getting into <clears throat> mixology. He's of age to do that, and um, you know one of the things I point out to him is that it's probably. You know, as much as movies, it's one of those areas where you can date something exactly by its name. I mean, there's no there's no thinking that a fuzzy navel was a drink in the 20s or that, <laughs> you know, the diplomat or an aviation were drinks in the 70s. I mean, they very, they very much conjure up a specific period. Um, so, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, when you when you mention a classic one in this um you know, it, it really does convey time as much as, you know, a, a movie having, a, you know, a name like Shadow of a Doubt or The Big Clock or something, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that sums up a period. Um, yeah, speaking of The Big Clock, I mean, you mentioned The Stinger, and I was interested to read. I mean, that's that's one that's actually made and drunk in the movie and um, was a historical cocktail which sounds kind of horrible to me. I mean, it's cognac and creme de menthe. I don't know that. Uh, not 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 a staple in my bar. Let's right? Yeah. No, it sort of sounds like drinking Nyquil to me. But uh, it um... does ha it does have that aroma about it. <laughs> but 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 as you but as you pointed out, Mike, it is one of the actually one of the kind of few examples of an actual cocktail being cited in a film. And, and not only that, it's kind of a plot point because it's, it's kind of essential that Ray Milan and Rita Johnson get a little, a little drunk, right. Uh, you know, to set up the plot that they, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, the, the movie isn't the book so that there isn't really a dalliance there between them. Like there is in the book, but, um, they definitely, they have to drink enough so that he can cop the idea that he passed out. Right. <laughs> Whereas that wasn't necessarily the case in the book, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there are a few that are actual cocktails of the time and obviously some classics. I mean, the Gimlet fe features in there and things like that. 
Um, but a lot of, you know, it seems like a lot of people in recent days inventing sort of vintage feeling cocktails are giving them names from film noir. I suppose that's inevitable, but, you know, it's interesting to see how that that works. Well, Abigail, Abigail Gula, who created the Mildred Pierce, I mean, she she was doing what I did with like 10 or 12 of the cocktails in this book, which was I love this movie. What would what would make sense if I wanted to make a Mildred Pierce cocktail? What would be in that? And uh, and and it's great. I mean, that's a dangerous cocktail because it's so <laughs> easily drinkable that you could drink three of those and be totally loaded before you know it because it's it's uh, it. it it's very well integrated. The the grapefruit and the aperol and the lime juice and the mezcal all kind of it's yeah. great. It's a great cocktail. But I know exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it was fun researching the book to find out like that there were cocktails that were that already existed, and then the film noir movie happened, and now. I'm na- I'm kind of reviving the cocktail, like the angel face. The yeah. angel face was a, it had already existed, but then kind of fallen out of favor. And then when I said, I got to have an angel face cocktail because I love that <laughs> movie. And then when I researched it and found out, wow, this was actually named for a gangster, huh. you know, and, uh, and was created at the Detroit athletic club which is cracks me up because when I started doing a lot of this research, I discovered that the Detroit athletic club was more like a big speakeasy than it was yeah, an athletic yeah. club. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, I just loved finding out stuff like that. Yeah. I'm, uh, I mean, I've just got lost there, uh, looking through it. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of these, uh, some of these things, I mean, did they drink, did people drink mezcal in the forties? I don't know, even know. No. Uh, okay. So some of these are modern. No, I mean, I and I, I, I do, I do um, go out of my way at times to say I'm doing this, even though this is not right. appropriate. Like, like I have a tequila sunrise in there, and it, there was no such thing. Yeah. Uh, in the in the film noir era, but here, but I, I explain why I think the drink fits with the movie I chose to represent it. You know, yeah. and, and, and that was, you know, that was the fun I got out of doing the book, Mike is like, well, look, here's a, you know, to specifically to look at that instance, it was like, um, I wanted to do a color noir film uh. just to bring, to bring up that whole idea because some people ask me all the time, can film noir be in color? And it's like, well, a kiss before dying is so classically a, a, a true film noir, but it's in color. Right. And, and it's color palette is so vivid that it reminds me very much of, of that drink, right. Which has the orange and the tray, you know, the grenadine, you know, sinks into the drink and all that. And, and I had been on the TCM cruise with RJ Wagner and that's what he drank. He drank tequila, right. It was like, Hey, Hey buddy, you want to go get me a tequila at the bar, you know? And, and, uh, and, and, and we spent an evening drinking a lot of tequila on that cruise. So, and then, and that gives me something to write about that's personal and a, 
you know, kind of a fun thing. Like you're a bartender telling people, you know, I, I drank tequila with Bob Wagner. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's like, that's kind of the way I approach the book. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make you this cocktail and then I'm going to tell you these stories to enhance your amusement with the whole thing. I am fully aware that mezcal is not something that would have been consumed. And when I do, I, I even say in the caption for one of the photos in the Mildred Pierce thing that I guarantee you that mezcal is not in this bar that Zachary Scott, you know, or, right. or that in, in Mildred's, you know, cocktail lounge annex to her restaurant, there was no mezcal in there, but why, why not take advantage of the fact that it's here now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then there's some, I mean, some classics fit so perfectly. I mean, that the last word, which is a classic cocktail is your choice for DOA. I mean, what could be more perfect than that? You know, the, <laughs> I agree. These match up so perfectly. Um, the other one I was going to just sort of, you know, thank you for in awe is that Dr. Broadway gets a mention at all and a cocktail <laughs> called a board and chase, uh, you know, invented by you or, or no, you say no one's quite sure. No, no, no. That's a, that's a real cocktail. Okay. That is a real cocktail. All right. So a screenwriter and... got a cocktail name for him. I suppose that's not really that surprising. Uh, but I couldn't find another example of it. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 when I learned about the Borden Chase cocktail, I said, wow, that's amazing. Like, he must have written more than I was aware of. But yeah. then, <laughs> no, not not really. But but he was such an interesting guy. Again, there's a there's a gangster connection because, uh, you know, Borden Chase, when he was. Um, what was his name? Frank Fulton or something like that was his was his real name. And he was a he was a driver, you know, for a gangster in uh, in New York who was a, was a rival of Al Capone's. He was the guy's chauffeur. And and it's a very weird story because one night um, the guy said, I'm going to drive myself. And that's the night the guy got murdered. Huh. And and if you don't think I'm suspicious that that yeah. somebody tipped off Frank <laughs> Fulton, like you don't drive tonight, you know, and and then he went into hiding and worked as a sand hog, you know, digging the the uh, Holland Tunnel under New York, and then became a writer after that and and took the name Borden Chase from the milk company and the bank, <laughs> and 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 became a really interesting character and then of course his only remotely noir film was dr broadway yeah and um that's part of my thing as you know mike is uh, i uh, I'm, uh, i'll talk about double indemnity and out of the past till the cows come home but i really like turning people on to dr broadway and decoy and uh specter of the rose and you know, all of which are mentioned in this book and are not films that are well known or even easy to find. Right, right. Or The Devil Thumbs a Ride, which yeah. is pretty hard to see these days. Um, Tell me to, about it. But to me, is just like such a quintessential. I mean, from the title on down, you know, it's it's practically textbook noir. 
Um, in fact, you know, when I saw it when I was a kid and, you know, my thought was, well, this must be what Detour is like. And I have to say, Detour has never lived up to the Devil Thumbs a Ride scene when I was 15 or whatever. So, Well, that's uh, how that works. Yeah. That's how that works, right? <laughs> you know, it's like what there is a point in our lives when we are at our most impressionable. And what whatever hits you at that time, you're going to go through the rest of your life saying nothing's going to live up to that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and it's and it's different for different people. You know, I didn't see the devil thumbs a ride until I was like 40 or something. Right. You know? <laughs> and I appreciated it in it completely, yeah. you know, mostly for for tyranny. Like, man, just <laughs> that how do guy. they how do they how do they harness this guy? You know, he's. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, you know, and, and I, I get it. If pe- people don't see, because I saw Detour when I was very young, you know, and I stayed up, I heard about it and I stayed up late to watch it on TV when there was no VCRs or anything like sure. that. And it was, and it had the, it had the proper impact on me. Because yeah. you gotta watch that movie, and you, you gotta watch it in the dead of night on a TV <laughs> when you're alone, you know. And it right. just it it works on your brain in a different way than if you're going to see it in the you know at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And <laughs> right. it's like, what, what the hell is that about? You know? Yeah. Well, of course, now I have the the Criterion disc. You know, the production of which I'm sure cost many times what Detour cost in the first place. But precisely. Yeah. All right, so that's that's one of your books, Noir Bar, Cocktails Inspired by the World of Film Noir. And then your other book, because it's important to start corrupting the children early, is... You got it. <laughs> Kid Noir, Kitty Farrell, and the Case of the Marshmallow Monkey. Um, <laughs> and I particularly liked the uh, Sidney Green, Greenstreet-esque uh, owl, who is uh, a character in it along the way. But yeah, tell me about that and, and why you thought kids need a dose of noir at such an early impressionable age. Because, uh, I learned, I don't know how long ago, long ago is, but I learned a while back because, you know, you're, you're well aware of the work I do restoring and preserving films. And then I learned, you know, that's not enough. You got to preserve the audience for the films. And, I've had some, some of the most gratifying moments of my career are when young people thank me for turning them on to these movies. And so it's a natural progression that I would, I would find a way to make this skew as young as possible. Right. Because you, so when uh, running press, all they had was the two words, kid noir. And <laughs> yeah. my, my colleague, uh, Jessica Schmidt, who was the head of the children's book division at running press, but, but then she retired from that to do other things. But one of the very last things she did was convince them that kid noir needed to exist. And I, you know, I know that she went into the editorial meeting in a trench coat and a fedora with, you know, her, her scarlet lipstick and the whole thing. And and then they said, would you be interested in doing this? 
And I said, is it going to be in black and white? <laughs> because if it's in, if it's in black and white, I will absolutely do this. And obviously we ended up with, you know, spot color and, right. and little color use of color, but predominantly it's, it's a black and white thing. It's very atmospheric. All, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, all of which was this notion that it will get kids used to seeing that type of imagery, not just the noir iconography, but just black and white. Yeah. So that when they so that when they go from their picture books to their TV screens and stuff, when they see black and white, they'll enjoy it and not think there's something wrong. You know, yeah, where's yeah. the color? <laughs> so um, so that that was really the motivation. And then and after that, it was just having fun. You know, like, how do you how do you take this idea that. Obviously, I wasn't going to write a book in which, uh, you know, Jack and Jill murder Jill Ferris and bury him in the sandbox. You know, that we're we're not going to go that far. Yeah, kindergarten indemnity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How how do you how do you uh, translate this to uh, ages four to eight? And and it was fun. I, I really liked the challenge because, uh, and I have to say, uh, I chose, it was a conscious decision on my part to, to make it animals instead of people because these days there's just way too much baggage with with making, like if I made it a little boy, right. then you're setting all kinds of traps for yourself and then you're leaving young young girls out of it you're leaving them out of the fun because they're probably not going to want to read a book in which a little boy is the protagonist yeah but everybody loves cats right yeah cats and dogs so i just thought this is great plus plus it allows me to avoid all the the contemporary pitfalls about gender roles and all that stuff because kitty feral can be whatever you want kitty feral to be right Yeah. Uh, female cat, male cat, whatever it will. I'm really looking forward to the amusement factor of having people think they know what it is. And then, you know, cause I I've even caught the publisher at times referring to Kitty as a he. And I said, whoever said it was a he, right. you know, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's never specified. And, and, in fact, Mike, I will just tell you that I always imagined it was Ella Rain from <laughs> Phantom Lady. Well, there you it's go. Like, that's, that's my Kitty Farrell, you know. Yeah. It's, a, it's a feline, and uh, I see Kitty. Kitty is a is a female, and Mitch is a, obviously a male dog, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But <laughs> people people who read it get to imagine whatever they want. Yeah. Now, to me, I mean, it it kind of reminded me of so many things that were sort of like cultural depth charges in my childhood. You know, all the things I read in Mad Magazine and didn't get the reference to till 10 years later or, you know, in the Warner Brothers cartoon, uh, you know, I had no idea what you know, something about scrap metal or whatever right. was was right. referring to. Um, but, you know, in time, 
I, you know, years later it'd be, Oh, that's what that was. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, to me, it's an important part of childhood that you sort of, you know, lay these depth charges of, of, you know, cultural things that will be found at some future point. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, that's exactly the approach that I took. I thought, you know, I'm going to do this story. There will be a sense of uh, immediate, I hope, immediate gratification with the story and the solution. And I, I think kids will enjoy it. But then I, my greatest pleasure was imagining, just as you say, like a, like a time release thing that 10 or 12 years down the road, that kid who reads the book is going to stumble across uh, out of the past or gun crazy or double indemnity on television. And suddenly their brain is going to explode yeah (laughs) (laughs) because it's like that's what that was oh my god yeah (laughs) precisely there must be books right there 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 have to be books from your childhood that that you later on realized were way more influential than you realized yeah yeah well i mean more than more than anything it's mad magazine i'm sure you know i got i i I agree completely. I mean, Mad was Mad informed an entire generation of Americans. Yeah, uh, you know, and 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 I think there is a difference between the subsequent generation because they didn't have Mad Magazine. They didn't have the same irreverent worldview that so many of us absorbed through Mad Magazine. I mean, first it was mad, and then a lot of people moved on to National Lampoon and that kind of stuff. But but holy cow, Mad Magazine, I think, was the single most influential publication <laughs> in the history of America, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and, and yeah, I, I just love that story. So I, I'm, I was hoping that, you know, I might, who knows, you, you won't know if you've achieved that until much, much later. And and uh, I think I gave an interview to somebody, you know, an email thing where I said my my big hope is that when I'm like 81 years old or something, <laughs> some some 24 year old is going to come up to me and say my love. of I got my love of noir from Kitty Farrell in right. the case of the marshmallow monkey. You know, that's yeah. where it began. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, hopefully it'll be, you know, some, some kid who's just made a $200 million movie too. So (laughs) yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. Um, well, let's just talk about Nora a minute. It's kind of been on my mind because I observe some people on online having the argument of, well, that's not really a noir because it's not from America or whatever the the criteria is. And I suspect strongly, given your involvement with like the Argentine uh, yeah. noirs, particularly the bitter stems, man, I, that is so bleak. I love that one. Um, yeah, that's just. But, phenomenal film. You know, a lot of people seem to want to have rules for noir and it's you know, it's not like anyone opened a studio just to make noirs or, you know, set up the rules of noir that everybody had to follow like the production code. I mean, it's just something that kind of happened. So it seems to me that it's you're free to 
you know, take its influence and take it where you want to go with it. But I don't know. What, what do you think? I mean, are there, you know, are there certain things that make you definitely a noir or not a noir in terms of, um, it, it, I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. This is, this is my life now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is is dealing with this question and the, 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 the way people discuss noir tells you more about them than it than it does about what is noir. I mean, it, it really is like a Rorschach test or something at this point, because, you know, the, there are certain people who say it's not noir because there was no femme fatale. Right. And, and you know, I, I, I don't want to get into a big hassle with these people, but I can I can attest that, you know, there, there's probably more than 400 of these movies that were made in the classic era in Hollywood and maybe 30 of them have a femme fatale in it. You know, yeah. they're, they're just imagining that that's what it is because of double indemnity and out of the past and the killers and lady from Shanghai. And I, and I always say, you know, it, it doesn't have to have a femme fatale. It's just the best ones generally do, yeah. but it, it's not a qualifier for the thing. It really is more like a worldview, you know, uh, and the idea that it's American. When I wrote my book, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, in the, back in the last century, right. <laughs> I, I, totally, I totally approached it as though film noir was exclusively an American phenomenon because I was writing about why did it happen in America at the time it happened, right? What were the cultural influences that caused this to suddenly happen and start at a certain point and kind of end at a certain point? Well, I've learned subsequently that it was silly to think that there were borders around it because movies cross borders, right? Right. And, and, and all of these things were based on most of them are based on crime novels and who's the greatest crime novelist of the 20th century. How many people in this country are going to say, Oh, it was Hammett or Chandler or James M. Cain. And I'll tell you right now, it's George Simenon, right? <laughs> the Belgian is the greatest crime writer of the 20th century. And so it, once you accept that, how do you, how do you think, film noir is an exclusively American thing. More movies have been adapted from Simenon's books and stories than anybody else. So, you know, that, that's my attitude about it. In fact, you know, I'm sitting here before you called Mike and I'm, I'm making up a proposed program for next year's noir city film festival. And it's filled with international films. Yeah. Right. Sweden and Mexico and Japan and Argentina and Poland. You know, it's just that nobody has thought to look for them. But they're there. Trust me, they're there. And I and I just find that absolutely fascinating. Like, like, why is how is it different? How is a Polish film noir different? Right. from an American film noir or a French film noir or an Italian film noir, you know? And, and people always say to me, here's an example. People say to me, were there any films from the classic era that had African-American protagonists, right? 
And it's like, well, you know, there was no way out that had Sidney Poitier in 1950. But there were films made in Italy with American, black American soldiers who became the stars of these films because they were in Italy and they stayed right. after the war because they said, I can do this in Italy. I can't do this back home. Right. And, and to me, that's just, you know, j this guy, John Kitzmiller was a, was a African-American soldier who became like a somewhat of a star in Italy, making these kind of crime filled neo-realist movies that, it's not a big stretch to call them noir. Right. And uh, I mean, how fascinating is that? So what? I'm going to I'm going to not talk about this because there's no femme fatale in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah. No, I, I think that's the thing. I mean, it's so clear that people, you know, took took to the worldview quickly and made it in their own backyard. And in a certain sense, America took to it quickly because they really kind of got it from France, you know, in the late 30s, and also from Germans. I mean, what's 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 an American film noir? It's a it's a you know based on an American pulp story, and it's directed by some German guy who came to the studios, you know, in the yeah. in the late 30s or 40s. You know, it's the the Fritz Langs and Robert Siad Max and whoever of the world. So. Um, I mean, it, it, to me, yeah, it's definitely international, and you know, you just need to get out more if you have a problem with that. That's the way. Uh, I well put. I <laughs> I can't say I can't say it that bluntly because I look like I'm knocking my my fan base, <laughs> sure. but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with what you just said. Noir Bar, Cocktails Inspired by the World of Film Noir from Running Press, is out now. And Kid Noir, Kitty Farrell and the Case of the Marshmallow Monkey, comes out from Running Press Kids on September 19th. Links for both will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Beg your pardon? Who said that? I haven't seen you since you solved the Kettle Murder case. How are you? Well, for the love of... Nick Charles, what are you doing up there? Impersonating a book cover? Shh. I'm working on a case. Don't tell me you've gone back to detective work. I thought you had turned respectable. Didn't you get married? Oh, didn't I? Vance, I married a girl in a million. Hmm. I heard it was a girl uh, with a million. Well, same thing. I've become a California gentleman. I never heard of such a thing. What are you doing here in New York? Well, it seems that Clark Gable is making some personal appearances here, which uh, interests my wife. And there's a very good bar at the Ritz, which is all right with me. So we popped into town to play. But would you believe it? Before you could say Metro Golden Mayor, I stepped right into the middle of a baffling murder mystery, and they put me to work. Well, you poor fellow. You That's William Powell as Philo Vance, introducing audiences to William Powell as Nick Charles in the original trailer for 1934's The Thin Man. Almost a century later, The Thin Man remains beloved for its picture of a married couple who drink, wisecrack, and, oh, by the way, solve mysteries. 
William Powell and Myrna Loy came to this iconic couple, oddly enough, after both starting out playing villains in silent films, a story that my fellow Chicagoan Rob Koslowski, who is Buskeet on Nitrateville, tells in Becoming Nick and Nora from Applause Books. Why'd you want to write a book about I mean, there's no, like, huge scandal, no Kenneth Anger-esque uh, angle to the to William Powell and Myrna Loy. Why'd you want to write about? Well, I, you know, it was. A, a, I've always wanted to write an old movie book. I'm one of those folks who started watching classic movies as a little kid uh, in Chicago in the 1970s. Sunday afternoons, family classics on WGN. My parents got me into it, uh, and I eventually just became kind of obsessed. Uh, with old movies. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and my, I would make my mom drive me to the northwest side of Chicago to a shop called Metro Golden Memories, oh, yeah. uh, which was the only place you could buy like silent movies on VHS. And I uh, just started gobbling up all these film history books. So I really always wanted to write something. And it occurred to me a few years ago that you know, there's been a couple of books about William Powell. There's been, you know, Myrna Loy wrote an autobiography, and uh, there was a pretty good biography that came out a little over 10 years ago of Myrna Loy. But I just thought what I thought was really interesting was the fact that they both started out as villains. Um, you know, here's this team that, you know, is is most famous for being Nick and Nora for, you know, appearing in more than a dozen movies together. And, you know, even though they were 13 years apart in age, they both had sort of really similar trajectories to stardom, which was, you know, starting out as villains and, and all of these fits and starts over the years before they really hit it big, uh, you know, at MGM in 1934. So I thought it would be really interesting to write a book about them together. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've seen a number of Powell's uh, silence in particular, and mm -hmm. you always kind of have this feeling of, oh, come on, you're William Powell. You don't believe all this hooey, do you? <laughs> right, right. And he uh, he's wonderful in these. I mean, there, a lot of the, you know, inevitably, a lot of his silence are lost, you, mostly from about the middle period of his silent career, like, you know, 25 to 27, there's a lot of the silence lost. So you know that a lot of them probably weren't fantastic. And But I think one really good representative movie that exists is Special Delivery with Eddie Cantor, um, where Powell plays sort of this evil guy, and he has, I don't know, like 10 minutes in the movie, but what's great about this stage of his career is that all he has to do is show up on screen and the audience knows he's a bad guy. Right. So we don't have to, we don't have to, we don't have to like mess with all that, you know, exposition and stuff. You know, you just know that he's there. Uh, and I suspect that a lot of those films of that period were like that. So it's really weird, you know, from our perspective to watch them because he's such a rat bastard uh, in these movies. But, you know, what I found interesting was like, how did audiences perceive him at the time? You know, that was their first look at him. So it's just sort of weird to look at it from our perspective today and think of it as such a strange persona uh, on screen. But, you know, at the time he was like, he was the go-to guy at Paramount for uh, villainy. Well, and as you point out, I mean, there are movies like, uh, 
I don't know how you say it, Romola or Romola. Yeah, I, I've never figured that one out. <laughs> yeah, um, which are which is kind of a stiff. It's very lavish, and as mm-hmm. lavish movies often are, not all that exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, he steals everything he's in in it. I mean, he, right. has, he has the juiciest part by far, but he takes mm-hmm. full advantage of it. So absolutely, he was. Fully committed. I mean, he, uh, that's the remarkable part. And, you know, Powell, there's not a lot of existing interviews of Powell. I mean, pretty much he, you know, after the early 30s, he really didn't do interviews. So it's kind of hard to kind of peer into his head. But every time that he was interviewed, he complained about typecasting. And I think that he tried to find something new in every role. Now, Romolo was wonderful for him, right? I mean, it was terrible for Lillian Gish, right. uh, who, <laughs> who was ostensibly the star of the movie and had nothing to do. Um, so Powell, you know, he not only stole the movie, it was given to him on a silver platter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he, and he took full advantage of it. I mean, you know, I'd really be interested in seeing that on the big screen, to stay, big screen someday to see if the experience of watching it has improved at all. Because, it's not good. Yeah, but... <laughs> I, I found it, you know, watchable. Um, mm-hmm. But it suffers from a real problem that both of its putative stars are just not that interesting. It's it's pretty easy for uh, Powell to pull a, a Roddy McDowell and Cleopatra and, and walk Absolutely. off with, you know, half of this lavish production, at least. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and the timing couldn't have been better. Because, you know, it was 1924. It was only a couple of years into his movie career. He was really, you know, kind of finding his niche. And, you know, this this movie came along and he was really the only thing to talk about. And, um, you know, that really got him that that, you know, brought him to the attention of Paramount. And that's how he got under contract with them. Meanwhile, Myrna Loy, somewhat younger, mm-hmm. comes to Hollywood a little right. later. Uh, interestingly, mm-hmm. from the same not terribly large town as Gary Cooper, mm-hmm. which is just one of those right. weird things of like how two people from the same town become stars. You know, it's always like the the factoid that seems the weirdest to me is that mm-hmm. Henry Henry Fonda studied acting under Marlon Brando's mother? <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of amazing what a tiny world it is. And, and you know, uh, I was actually in Helena, Montana, where both Cooper and Lloyd came from earlier this year and saw their childhood homes, and they were only a couple blocks away from each other. Yeah. So what are you going to do, Gary? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, I mean, the funny thing is, is that Myrna will, you know, she was Myrna, born Myrna Williams. Her dad was a politician. Gary Cooper's dad ended up being a Supreme Court justice in Montana. Right. So, you know, both their paths were, you know, wildly unexpected. You know, it's not like they came from acting families. So it's just, it is a, a remarkable coincidence. But she she gets even more uh, typecast than Powell at that point. Oh, yeah. Because for whatever reason of slightly unusual looks, she winds up you know, playing all these exotic, sometimes Asian, which just seems mm-hmm. incredible in light of her later roles where she's, you know, the all-American mom. Um, mm-hmm. But she's, you know, she's playing all these, you know, the daughter of Fu Manchu and things like that. Um, right. And it finds it a pretty frustrating time, it sounds like. You know, her first near decade in the movies is, you know, right. unsatisfying. Absolutely. And, you know, what's really interesting, of course, is that, you know, first of all, it is one of the great mysteries of movie history is how on earth uh, she was typed that way, um, because 
obviously, you know, for some reason or other, the suits at Warner Brothers saw her as uh, something exotic. They they promoted her as a new kind of vamp. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, it was like Theta Barra, you know, had really um, uh, what's the word? It really sort of uh, exhausted her appeal in the nine million movies that Fox uh, put her in. Uh, her star was on the fall. So I think, you know, Warner Brothers was just, you know, they had just launched a couple of years earlier. They were looking for stars because, you know, it's well publicized. Their biggest star was Rin Tin Tin. Um, so they were they were looking for those types. And, and my only my only thing is, is that because the fact that Myrna was a dancer, uh, that they thought that that was somehow exotic and her looks weren't necessarily traditional. But yeah, that's how they promoted her, was the new kind of vamp. Yeah, and it's interesting when she finally does get out of them and she's forced back into them a couple of times. I mean, like Massacre right. Fu Manchu is really mm-hmm. after she thought she had gotten out of them once and then she's getting stuck right. in them again. But when she gets out of them, it's partly because everybody in Hollywood knows her and they know that she's not that thing. She's yeah. She's a, a normal, charming uh, woman, and is uh, mm-hmm. you know is not actually going to you know stab you with a uh, a dagger with a scarab beetle on it or something. So. Right. Exactly. And and you know I mean David O. Selznick took credit for discovering that, which of course he took credit for literally everything. Yeah. But um, he he uh, you know he's I think it was. The Animal Kingdom that uh, she did at RKO, which was based on a Philip Berry play. And that was really the first time, you know, MGM had signed her, but they didn't quite get it with her just yet. Um, You know, she had small roles in things like Emma and New Morals for Old, where, you know, she wasn't playing a vamp, but she also didn't have very much to do. And so you had uh, at RKO, she was lent out for RKO for the Animal Kingdom and Topaz. And there she was able to like, be herself a little bit more. I suspect the folks at MGM saw those films and realized, you know, they could put her in things like Penthouse and um, Prize Fighter and the Lady, and her persona kind of slowly evolved over a couple of years. Where you know, it almost seems like a sudden transition because there's like what there's really only about a year and a half difference between Mascafu and Manchu and the Thin Man. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's just, it, it, it's incredible how quickly things changed. Uh, you know, just because they had to they'd do so many movies that, you know, from our perspective, uh, it seemed like a sudden transition. But it was, you know, it was relatively gradual over the course of five or six films that, um, you know, and folks like, you know, producers Hunt Stromberg and director Woody Van Dyke, they realized what Merloy could do best. And, uh, you know, they were smart enough to cast her in the good parts. Yeah. And then Powell, meanwhile, gets, you know, the perfect uh you know, sort of dry run for the thin man in the Kemal mm-hmm. murder case, the best of the right. uh, the Philo Vance movies that he made. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the um, urban legends out there is that Powell and Loy were cast as Nick and Nora uh, as a result of their chemistry in Manhattan melodrama, but they were actually cast before uh, Manhattan melodrama was even produced um and powell primarily because of the philo vance role you know it wasn't even necessarily that he was seen as a potentially comic actor um you know he'd really only done a couple you know paramount everything he did was dead serious and warner's you know he did a couple of comedies high pressure um where he played a fast talking publicist and um jewel robbery 
uh, but where they didn't he's... really quite do comedy at Warner Brothers. Right. They did something yeah. that was sort of urbane and and exactly. maybe tinged with humor, but um, right. yeah. Even though he achieved sort of star status at Paramount thanks to Philo Vance, you know, in the Canary murder case and the Green murder case and the Bishop murder case, which don't age well today. Uh, but, you know, they did do a few interesting things kind of to get him in the public's mind as a hero. There's a couple of pictures, Street of Chance and For the Defense that he did at Paramount, where he sort of plays uh, not villains, but sort of crooked guys who end up redeemed at the end. They make some sort of noble sacrifice. So he manages he managed to sort of evolve. But yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for the Kennel murder case, I don't think he would have been cast as, as Nick Charles because the Kennel murder case is a fabulous movie. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he really is able to kind of let loose a little bit more at that point. He has Michael Curtiz as a director. He has, you know, a uh, really good cast around him. Now, the interesting thing about The Thin Man, everybody always points out, uh, mm-hmm. it makes you realize just how ubiquitous the Boy Meets Girl story is when mm-hmm. suddenly you have a hit out of a couple who are already married and there's really right. no romantic tension. I mean, it's not like wife mm-hmm. versus secretary or something. Right. It's, you know, it's just, you know, the these are our lives and meanwhile we're solving a murder and that's the plot or that's plot right. A. But it's, you know, about their their ongoing relationship, which is pretty unusual at the time and still unusual today, I would say. Yeah, I think, you know, the the, in, in the immediate impulse when you're doing a, uh, uh, a movie about a married couple is you have to put some sort of, uh, you know, conflict in there, even if it's just, uh, you know, a jealousy or a third person, even if it's not necessarily an affair. I mean, that's the remarkable thing about, uh, you know, the thin man is that you, you watch this movie and you realize that there's nothing wrong happening between the two of yeah. them at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's no disagreement there. I mean, all they do is just enjoy each other's company. And, you know, if there's any conflict, it's sort of the, uh, you know, that the Nora wants to be involved in the mystery and he wants to protect her and keep her away from it. But, I mean, it's really, I, that's not, you know, that's almost done in a very playful way um, yeah. throughout all the movies. There's never like a point, you know, except maybe in the final movie, which, you know, many people don't even want to mention, uh, <laughs> where, you know, there's genuine danger. But um, the uh, it's 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 remarkable. And, and no matter how many times you actually watch this movie, it's like, how on earth did they manage to do this? And no one else can, you know, no one else can. People, you know, try to think of other married couples that sort of stand up to Nick and Nora. But, you know, they they don't. It's it's just kind of it's that. It's that incredible chemistry that two actors had with each other and the fact that they just liked each other a lot and you just wanted to spend time with them. Yeah, which is also, I suppose, the reason why it's really the only A-movie series of the mm-hmm. classic era. I mean, there's no, you know, it's it's genuine top-ranked stars playing right. in sequels, which was very unusual then, obviously not unusual yeah. now. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, but they're not—they're not Sidney Toller, and and that's what's really interesting and unique about it. Is of course, you know, I'm sure MGM would have loved to churn out six of these a year, um, you know, and make the mo- kind of money they were making. But um, because they were A-list stars, they had to um, give them um, t- 
time to sort of ferment. You also also had the, you know, especially for the first several, you had the fact that Dashiell Hammett had still had the rights. So you had to deal with him. Um, but the nice thing that, you know, the nice thing about the fact that they actually took their time to come up with the sequels is that they got to appear together as characters other than Nick and Nora in quite a number of films. And um, so we kind of get the both of, best of both worlds. You know, they managed to make 14 films together. Only six of them were Nick and Nora. So we got to see their chemistry um, expressed in really different and unique ways, which I thought, you know, is really, I mean, they're really a unique pair in, in that way because they're, you know, they, they, they have their two best known characters, but there's some real gems among the other ones that they made too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Tell me, what, what do you think of the real standouts otherwise? Well, you know, I am a sucker for double wedding and it, I, I should feel guilty for liking double wedding because it was the worst movie for them to film. Uh, you know, Powell was romantically involved with Gene Harlow who died during the filming. So both Powell and Loy really had no good memories about uh, double wedding, but I, Enjoy it, A, because Powell plays this sort of uh, devil-may-care um, bohemian who lives in this sort of, I don't even know, do you call it a trailer? I don't know <laughs> if you call it a trailer. It's like a little bus. He lives in a bus right. outside this bar, and they, you know, it's just a really imaginative little world. And um, John Beale playing uh, Waldo, this the most agreeable human being in the history of movie movie history who basically is marrying someone because Myrna Lloyd told him to um, is a, I think it's a brilliant comic performance. I love that movie. And I love you again uh, is also a standout that in which Powell plays an amnesiac who I think it has basically the same premise as random harvest is that he's an amnesiac who regains his old memory. Um, and does, you know, he, he turns out to be a crook when he, during his amnesiac period, he developed the identity of this uh, goody two-shoes who's married to Myrna Loy. And the plot is absolutely ridiculous in every possible way. It and, works you know, if you know no actual medical facts about amnesia. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, those two are the standouts. And there's others that, that are, you know, good fun to watch. But I mean, to, for the novice, that those are the two non-Nick and Norris that I recommend. Okay. And how how do you feel about how the uh the Thin Man series went out? I always remember somebody, maybe it's James Agee or somebody, mm-hmm. having a throwaway line about, you know, the Thin Man before he died of starvation, which <laughs> uh has always colored how I see mm-hmm. anything past after the Thin Man. So. Right, right. You know, I and I remember I used to always hear that the first three were the good ones. Um and, you know, if you look at, you know, first of all, Thin Man and After the Thin Man, I think, are just absolute masterpieces. And my wife actually prefers the After the Thin Man um, because I think it has that element, uh, you know, because of the fact that now we have Nora's family introduced. I think the whole sequence at her aunt's home with the uh, decrepit old butler and all of the ancient uh, wealthy people falling asleep at the table. And I just I think it has that extra extra fun. It's hard to say which one is superior, but I'd say the first two are equally as wonderful. And then with another Thin Man, by then um, Hackett and Goodrich, the screenwriters, were sick and tired of it. Um, And, you know, I think it was Albert Hackett, the co-screenwriter, who said that, you know, they wanted, they introduced Nora uh, knitting 
Nick Jr.'s uh, little booty at the end of After the Thin Man because that'll that'll kill the film series. Right. <laughs> um, and and uh, they even claimed that they wanted to kill them both at the end of the second movie. I doubt if that's true. <laughs> that, w- that wasn't going to happen um, at MGM. Uh, yeah, I said I'd love to see that draft. Another Thin Man just feels a little tired. It feels like neither Hackett nor Goodrich were really interested in Nick and Nora. They, you know, isolated them at this estate on Long Island. There's one great scene in a nightclub, but, you know, they're bogged down with Nick Jr. Um, and there's way too much time spent in scenes with supporting characters when Nick and neither Nick and Nora are present. So I think the third one, I, I, I'm going to start a controversy and say, I think the, another Thin Man is actually inferior to Shadow of the Thin Man, which I think at least tried to do a couple new things. Okay. So I think, I mean, I don't think Shadow of the Thin Man is that good, but I do think it's superior to another Thin Man. And then Thin Man Comes Home, I think, isn't so terrible. Um, I think, you know, what's really interesting about that one is, of course, Myrna at the time had left acting in order to devote herself to the American Red Cross in World War II. So it's the only film she made in World War II. And then Song of the Thin Man, of course, is the one that everybody hates, um, (laughs) including Myrna Loy. And they were so sorry they made it. But the weird thing about it, if you actually watch that film and like take Nick and Nora, the expectation of Nick and Nora out of it, you know, it's really interesting as sort of a really B-movie noir that's not very good Um, because, you know, you have Charles Rocher, the master cameraman uh, behind the lens. You've got, you know, this is post-war 1947. You've got deep shadows that were missing in the last several films. Um, you know, early, you know, late thirties, early forties, MGM was all high key lighting, not a shadow to be seen anywhere. Um, so it looks a lot different. Um, so I think just as an academic exercise of like imagining if Nick and Nora weren't in it, it's a lot better. I, I'm pretty sure no one out there just has Song of the Thin Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, had times just changed too much for them? Were they a weird relic of another time, the way like Astaire and Rogers are in Barclays of Broadway? Yeah, I think probably. I mean, I, I think, you know, by, this, by, by the post-war era, you know, everybody who was involved with the previous movies was gone. You know, Woody Van Dyke, the director, had passed away. Hunt Stromberg, the producer, had left MGM to be, go independent. You know, uh, Goodrich and Haggett were, you know, well done with it. Um, you know, so I think it's just, I think the, just and MGM is in general in 1947 was, uh, you know, in a precipitous decline creatively, uh, you know, aside from the Arthur, you know, the Arthur Freed unit. So I think, um, you know, it was just, I think they probably could have done a good post-war Thin Man movie, but gosh, I don't, I, you know, you think about like the, I, I just don't, I don't think that style survived. I think, I just think that moment had passed. Yeah. So they, they finished up with just a little, uh, gag at the end of, uh, the Senator was indiscreet, which is mm-hmm. nicely sweet, you know, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a nice way to sort of close, you know, it's kind of a, you know, I opened the book with, uh, the filming of that, of Myrna Loy's cameo at the end of that movie. And it's, uh, it's really, it, it's a very sweet way to, to end the partnership, you know, and I think it really shows how much the two of them were attached in the public mind that, you know, of course it's her, 
you know, because his uh, Powell's character is talking about this unseen wife talking to right. her on the phone the whole time. Of course, it's Merle Loy. Um, you know, but it does so make that, you kind of wonder if he had made a movie where she was his wife all the way through. It made that movie basically, but a version of it in which she's right. a character interacting with him throughout. Yeah, that yeah. that would be interesting. I don't know. It, it would be. Yeah, I think um, you know it's a shame in some ways that they didn't. Continue. You know, it would have been really interesting to see them both do something together when they were old. Sometimes those sorts of uh, reunions end up being awfully anticlimactic. We've seen them in so many forms where we see a you know movie series or actors come back together after years and it ends up being disappointing. But I have a feeling that if those two chose a project to do together, it would actually be worth something because they were both pretty smart, you know, by that point in their careers and they were able to, you know, sort of like uh, how Redford and Newman were never able to get that third film together, even though they right. tried for decades. But, yeah. um, you know, the, the uh, it would have been interesting to see what it would have been like if, uh, you know, they had done one last thing together in the 50s or something. She managed to, you know, close her career, I think, with uh, some level of dignity. And she was just, she was uh, a good, I, I, I don't know how else to say it. She was a good lady. She just, you know, was smart and, and really kind of held the torch for old Hollywood for many years. And her autobiography is really, a, a you know, I think it was published in 1988, only a few years before she died. And she's very charming and um you know, had a, a really good memory uh, about, you know, I, there's not a lot that she got wrong in the autobiography, which is pretty impressive for any autobiography. All right. So you're going to, you're going to do a, uh, a presentation at a film here in Chicago. Tell me about that. Yes. Uh, so the music box theater uh, uh, presented by a group here in Chicago called the Chicago film society uh, is screening the bright shawl starring uh, Richard Barthelmas uh, in 1923. It's William Powell's fourth film, and he plays a Spanish villain. Um, and it takes place in Cuba in the mid-19th century. It's really, I can't think of another film that starts with an emotional tribute to President William McKinley. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great adventure. It's, 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 it's a fun adventure. It comes, uh, it's based on a novel from uh, Joseph Hergesheimer, uh, who was the author of uh, Tolerable David, that Barthelmess had made such a big hit out of a couple years earlier. And uh, Powell plays sort of this main villain. And what's really interesting about the film, it's Powell and only his fourth film, but he absolutely steals the picture. Um, I can't spoil the ending, but it's a shock surprise ending. That's a really real twist on the ending of Tolerable David. And Powell just runs away with the movie. And what's really interesting about the film is you got Edward G. Robinson in his first credited role. Uh, he was 30 at the time, uh, cast as a 60-year-old man, which I don't understand, you know, because apparently all the 60-year-olds were dead. And so um, uh, you had him in, the, in having a, a good role and a very young Mary Astor, uh, pre-Bo Bo Brummel, um, uh, playing the, the love interest along. And you also have uh, Dorothy Gish as well, which is a delight to see because, um, you know, not a lot of Dorothy's non-Lillian movies. Uh, right. survive so um it's just you know it's it i i watched it uh you know in a screening booth at ucla on a low-res copy on a monitor with no music and i thought it was uh, a blast so uh, i'm really happy to uh, be able to introduce this screening and i think it's monday november 6th at the music box theater and uh 
you know, I think you had mentioned it screened at Sensation um, maybe yeah. 10 or 12 years ago. And I think um, someone else uh, on the message board said it had screened at the Stanford Theater a few years ago. But it's a really, you know, I I would not be surprised if it hasn't been on the big screen in Chicago in 100 years. Right, so, right. Um, yeah. we're, we're, uh, we're, we're really happy to, to be able to present it. It's be a nice way to sort of see what made, you know, from our perspective, it's hard to understand why William Powell was the, the silent movie villain you'll understand after seeing this movie. And maybe I haven't been on a merry-go-round since that day. Are you uh, anywhere near a solution? Between you and me, I think so. I got all the suspects together at a dinner party. And then I pulled a fast one. I told them, and the murderer is right here in this room tonight. He's sitting here at this table. Becoming Nick and Nora, The Thin Man in the Films of William Powell and Myrna Loy by Rob Kozlowski is out now from Applause Books. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Rob Byrne, Eddie Muller, and Rob Kozlowski, and to Sita Zink and Rebecca Matheson at Running Press. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.